around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and your host for today, where we're going to be talking about the challenges around funding low carbon infrastructure. The focus on carbon and the environment has very much been in the news in the last few weeks with COP27 taking place in Egypt. But it's the longer term delivery on the ambition set out there that we'll be considering today. Joining me for this episode to talk through the challenges ahead for the infrastructure industry is Mark Crouch, who is Decarbonisation Discipline Lead at Mont MacDonald, who is also the lead author on a report published by the Institution of Civil Engineers at COP27 on financing low-carbon infrastructure. Mark has over 15 years' experience in infrastructure decarbonisation across a broad range of public and private sector clients in the UK and internationally, with areas of expertise including renewable and low-carbon technologies, energy and carbon markets, net-zero strategies, low-carbon construction, and tool and policy development. As well as delivering practical decarbonisation on infrastructure projects, Mark and the team he leads regularly bridge the gap between the finance and engineering communities, for example, by performing due diligence of investments for climate alignment and developing assessment frameworks and standards to be used in investment appraisal. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Mark. Thank you, Claire, and thank you for inviting me to discuss this important topic. Brilliant. So before we start talking about the report and the drivers for writing it and what your hope will come from it, could you share with us your thoughts on the outcome of COP27? Did global leaders go far enough in their commitments? And what do the decisions they did make mean for civil engineers and the infrastructure sector? Well, I think, um, you know, did the um, headline decisions go far enough? Um, of course, I, I'd have to say not from a, you know, from a decarbonisation perspective there wasn't any real progress there. However, you know, I, I set against the backdrop of the current geopolitics. I wasn't particularly optimistic about getting a lot of progress in, in that front. Um, what did happen, the, um, the, the principle of setting up a loss and damage fund, that there's a lot of details to be worked through with that. So um, I think there's, there's been a little bit of progress. And the whole concept behind this loss and damage fund, that will be about getting some some climate justice, um, some support mechanism uh, to really provide financial support for, for those countries that are suffering most from climate change. So I think just the principle of getting that set up is a big step, um, but there's a lot more detail to be worked through on that. So what the climate science tells us in terms of decarbonisation is that we need a lot more. You know, it would have been great to agree a target for global emissions to peak uh, by 2025, um, you know, in line with the goal of limiting temperature rises to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial pre levels. And that is the important threshold of safety that, that was the focus of the Glasgow Climate Pact signed last year at COP26. And we have seen lots of evidence recently that, that is quite pessimistic about our ability to remain beneath, beneath that 
that crucial 1.5 degree threshold. And, uh, you know, Alok Sharma, the UK's COP26 president, says uh, 1.5 degrees is on life support. And, and I think that there, there is a bit of pessimism around our ability to achieve that 1.5 degree threshold. Yet, actually, the message that that sends is it isn't that we should just throw our hands up in the air and give up. It's actually that we need to work harder on it. And even if we do overshoot that 1.5 threshold, we need to then bring it back down um, as, as quickly as possible. So really, it, it does give us a lot of impetus to decarbonize. And of course, what happens through the COP process, which is imperfect and uh, and it's slow, and the fact that we're at, at, at COP27 means that we've been talking about this for a number of years. Um, but but that's you know that that's the way that these international agreements work. But but we do need to look beyond those headline agreements to. To, to thinking about COP as a focal point for, for industry. And so what we see in civil society, what we see in the financial sector, in the industry and engineering, actually that does give me some reasons to be a bit more optimistic. Um, we do see a very clear direction of travel. And what that means for engineers in the infrastructure sector is, is, is really an increased focus on decarbonisation and resilience. Um, the fact that we know that some climate change is locked in means don't forget about resilience. Um, there's going to be a lot of work for the infrastructure sector and, and, and engineers to deliver against those goals. That means new types of infrastructure and it means delivering all kinds of infrastructure in as low carbon a way as possible and in a resilient way. So, uh, yeah, whilst my, my kind of overall scorecard on COP27 is not terribly good, I think we do need to we do need to be a bit glass half full around actually where the wider industry is going. So it's definitely everything to play for for civil engineers, but it's actually finding the money to fund the projects, isn't it? It is. It is, which does kind of bring us on to the report a little bit. Um, and and I think one of the key messages that that we've always heard from the financial sector, even in the you know the current economic climate is that there isn't a shortage of funds. It, it's actually demonstrating that the projects that, that are available for investing in do, do what they say on the tin. You know, do, 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 they, do they provide those long-term, um, long-term returns that investors are looking for from a technical, from an environmental and from a, um, from a financial perspective? And climate change is right at the heart of that. So let's consider the background that drives the report you worked on with the Institution of Civil Engineers. And to put that into context, the UK government has made it clear that the first step to delivering a green industrial revolution is, this is quoting, ensuring that the information exists to enable every financial decision to factor in climate change and the environment. So based on that, what do civil engineers need to know about low carbon financing models? So I'd like to make a couple of points here, which I hope aren't too contradictory. The first one is is around green finance or low carbon finance. And that's to say that the green finance is available on better terms. Um, green bonds, sustainable link bonds. Uh, th th there's definitely a market um, and an opportunity for projects to get better financial terms for demonstrating their environmental credentials. And, you know, a recent study has shown that the number of climate related funds has increased by about a third just in this year. 
So th there is lots of finance available that is labelled green. Um, however, th the other point that I'd like to make on that is, is I don't really like the term green finance because actually, particularly as we look longer term over the kind of timeframes that we talk about with infrastructure, all finance needs to be green. And, and actually, increasingly, access to capital will only be available to those that can demonstrate that their investment is environmentally beneficial. So on the point of, of what, what do you need to show to, to qualify for green finance, there's um, from a climate change perspective, there's a lot of indicators around carbon performance, and it is increasingly data-driven. Um, so demonstrating that you've got the evidence base around the carbon performance of your asset. And there's also um, a lot of emerging policy around categorization of policies, around ta taxonomies, for example, um, coming out of the EU, the UK and elsewhere that really categorize projects. And that, that's what you know investors look at when, um, when they're looking at, at where to invest their funds. Um, particularly against environmental performance. So the relevance for, for engineers come, you know, come through at the early stages of a project when you categorise the kind of project that it is. And I'm sure we'll come on to talking about scale a bit later on as well, which is, is also important. But, but then also just providing the confidence throughout the project delivery that, that it's delivered in a, in a low carbon way with um with the evidence there so i think the low carbon financing models in 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 some ways and and the report does quite a good job of setting out a baseline of different kinds of finance and where the finance might be coming from but actually part of what the report is also trying to achieve is demystify that a little bit and and, and highlight that actually a lot of it is around risk management that's what engineer engineers are very familiar with in, in projects. And it's what investors and financiers are, are, are very familiar with from looking at it from their perspective. So it's, um, it, it's really around bringing those kind of two worlds together. So we're kind of already talking the same language, you just mention, need to make sure we're talking together, but we'll come on to that in a moment. So how else is the finance community changing in response to the climate crisis? What questions perhaps do they need to answer before they're lending money on infrastructure investment these days? Uh, to take this back to quite high level, um, investors will always want three questions answered. One of them is, you know, the first is, is the project technically feasible? Um, the second, which is becoming ever more important, is, is it environmentally beneficial? And the third is, can they make money out of it? And, and so those are the three headline questions that, that the finance community will, will, will always want answering and uh, and again with infrastructure that's designed to operate for decades investors have to think long term and and you know engineers and designers are are often used to thinking in the long term as well and when the investment community is talking about things like pension funds that 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 again have to deliver returns over the period of decades um all of that lines up quite well so those those questions around yeah, is the project technically feasible that places new demands on engineers when we're talking about new technologies and and new responses to decarbonization that perhaps haven't been there before so hydrogen is getting a lot of press at the moment um sustainable aviation fuels 
energy generation, electric charging networks, etc. So the, the, there's an element of of actually forgetting about the, the kind of the carbon performance of these for this first question and thinking around, well, is, is it going to deliver what it needs to in terms of, of its outcome? And that, that you know, is, is very familiar territory for, um, for, for engineers. The second one, is it environmentally beneficial? So from a decarbonisation perspective, that's demonstrating that you've considered carbon performance, that, that you've done the calculations needed at the right stage of the, of the life cycle, and you've got clearly evidenced using well-accepted methodologies for, for doing that. But there's also a risk assessment element around what, what's known as transition risk, which is around risks associated with the transition to a low-carbon economy. And the project's decarbonizing is part of that response, but there's also thinking around what else will be changing over those timeframes that might, um, you know, in, a, in an extreme example, um, could lead to stranded assets if you're talking about investment in something that that is very clearly a high carbon asset, such as you know, a fossil fuel reliance project. So um, there's there's thinking about the risk assessment from a policy, from a technological, from a legislation perspective. So, so that, that is increasingly becoming part of the question that financiers are looking at and that engineers and engineering consultants will need to look at from their projects. And then, yeah, that, that kind of, can they make money out of it? I mean, that, that is obviously where the finance community will be, will also be quite focused on but but there's there's a role for engineers to get closer to that question and get closer to the clients and and have a bit more of um of a collaborative conversation around different parts of the infrastructure value chain um to come together think around where the key decision points are going to be made that could lead to a project going ahead or um or otherwise and really providing all the evidence that's needed to provide the confidence for investors Okay, great. So let's explore that relationship a little bit. We've already talked about the fact that both financiers and civil engineers talk the language of risk. But what's the current relationship like between civil engineers and financiers? And um, do they communicate well? And what would be the benefits of, uh, of the two sectors working more closely together as we go forward in developing low carbon infrastructure? Well, I think there's um obviously i'm talking in, in generalities here, there will be some really good examples of of civil engineers and and financiers collaborating very well together, but I I think there's there's a bit of a, a general perception of of the communities not being as close together as they should be, that there's a that there's a risk that um, that they're talking in different languages that they don't fully understand each other's needs. Um, I think engineers are 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 typically, in my experience, much more familiar and comfortable when they're dealing with technical issues on projects. And as soon as as soon as we start talking about financial sector terminology, it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable and that, that, that there's a difference in language. So I think there's an element of the two communities being a little bit distant at the moment and not talking to each other at an early enough stage in projects. 
I think there's, you know, there's an element of language to overcome. But as I've said previously, actually, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of commonalities in the approach. And, uh, and I think overcoming almost that, that, that fear of, um, of, of, of peeking into a, another sector's world is the first step and, and, and understanding what financiers are looking for. And, and that actually a lot of the evidence is things that engineers uh, and engineering consultants and climate change consultants that work within those sectors, you know, that, that are very easy to provide or, or, or and should be coming easier to provide and uh, as we get more well-defined methodologies. So I, I think that, you know, the, the key message there is really try and understand the um, the perspectives and the objectives of, of each other's uh, viewpoints. So engineers look to financiers and and really think about what what for the projects that that people are working on or the types of projects we're working on. Think about what are financiers going to look for to make those projects viable, and um, and really try and understand those things at the earliest stage possible. And of course, it cuts both ways that um, it, it, it'd be really good for financiers to to engage with the engineering community at an earlier stage, express what they're looking for, um, and actually seek out the opportunity to um, to bring engineers in at an early stage in the project, to, to bring you know technological innovation, design innovation, that can then help make projects more viable. So why is it those barriers exist, and why haven't we developed closer relationships in the past? For me, I, I I do think there's a a bit of a that that perception that um, that, that the communities don't speak to each other enough, um, and, and as I've said, that, that there are good examples of, um, of of engineers collaborating well with the finance community, but it, it it does feel like that the financing and funding of projects is a little bit of an afterthought in. The, the the education of of engineers um, typically engineering degrees and and part of the um, the process of becoming chartered as well doesn't really have much emphasis on on the financing of projects so I you know that, that that's part of the reason why the ICE uh, chose to, to to really do this important piece of work at this time uh, to help drive some of those changes to, to bring it in um, as part of the you know the education for, for, for engineers uh, as part of the um, the continuous professional development of um, and the training materials that are available and have a bit more of an open dialogue so I I, I, I do think you know that there are some good examples and, and you know I, I don't want to gloss over and and, and paint, paint a negative picture that, that the communities don't talk to each other. But, but because that that has been happening, but it just hasn't been happening enough, and it it you know overcoming the um, the cultural differences and the and the language barriers almost um, to, to to really understand each other's perspective um, ha- just hasn't happened enough. Just quoting from the report, it says that we need to be working closely with other parts of the infrastructure ecosystem to develop a more holistic approach to decarbonising new and existing assets. So could you elaborate on the holistic approach mentioned there and what the other parts of the ecosystem are that the report refers to? So I'll, I'll offer an example here around a holistic approach and I'll 
but to introduce something again that the that the ICE has been instrumental in in supporting uh, is is a standard for um, decarbonising infrastructure. It's called PAS twenty eighty, publicly available specification twenty eighty, which is all around carbon management and infrastructure. Um, it was first developed in twenty sixteen and followed on from the infrastructure carbon review that was first developed. Um, you know, t- 10 years ago now uh, for the UK government. And it, and it really is a practical toolkit for decarbonising infrastructure that maps out different parts of what we call the infrastructure value chain. Uh, now, the, the, the ICE and McDonald and Arup and various others have been involved in a collaborative effort to update this standard. And it includes not only infrastructure, but buildings and the new stand, the new specification will be published at the start of next year. And what what I really like about the approaches that are set out in, in past 2080 is that identifies different parts of the value chain. So when we're talking about infrastructure projects, there's the clients, there's the consultants, there's the contractors, there's the material suppliers, the product suppliers, the policy makers, the financiers. And what the... Um, what the specification sets out very clearly is how different parts of that value chain that are all responsible for delivering these assets have different roles to play in in, in delivering low carbon outcomes on the project um, and at different points in the project as well. And some of the things that are really re-emphasized in the new specification as well, and, and not just kind of the differences that you can make later on in the project with low carbon approaches, but it's about understanding the role of the infrastructure in delivering system level uh, decarbonisation outcomes. So is the project aligned with a net zero pathway? And at what point do different parts of that infrastructure ecosystem need to get together to to understand that? Um, and, And providing some really practical ways for um for, for those different partners in in the value chain to collaborate on these issues to evidence them to make the differences in the early stages of the project that can lead to to much better outcomes than if you make those decisions later on so i i, I think that's what we mean by the holistic approach where, where it becomes less transactional between those different partners and more collaborative where the you know the, the the business model of those projects as well is set up in a way that um, that everyone has a stake in delivering a low carbon outcome, uh, in delivering high performance um, infrastructure. So th- there's a lot of detail behind that, but I'd really direct people to take a look at, at PAS 2080 for some practical guidance on it. So some reading there alongside reading your report. Definitely. So you've come to this conversation fresh from the launch event for the report, where you brought together civil engineers, the finance community, asset owners, and industry leaders with the report's contributors. What was the reaction to the report? So the the reaction was overwhelmingly positive, and there was a, a great consensus that that this is is something that the industry needs to start a conversation. It's absolutely not not got all the answers in the report, um, and that that was never what it set out to achieve. But but it it is very much around promoting a conversation, 
beginning to build a community um, that, that can work on these issues over the coming year and beyond. So the, the first key message was it was very much needed. It was very much welcomed. Now, at the launch event, we also did something quite different where uh, it wasn't a standard um, panel discussion or being broadcast at. It was a, a fishbowl discussion, which um, was really interesting, where some of the, the key contributors to the report sat in in the middle of a circle and debated the topics. And then we invited the audience members in to come and give their perspectives. Uh, so the format of the event was quite innovative and it really provoked some, some great discussion. I think there was a huge amount of consensus that th th this needs to happen. So the, the, the recommend recommendations of, um, of having this community, of embedding the knowledge within the education within CPD, within the the, the kind of the, the the levers that the institution has under its um, under its control to, to to really embed financial knowledge in the in the engineering profession that was definitely welcomed. As it was, you know, asking the financiers to to, to step up and um, and join the community as well. So overwhelming support for that. I think some of the other things that were that, that really came out of the discussions were were around that the, this subject, whilst it can it can seem a little bit difficult for people to get into at first, that really shouldn't be a barrier. Um, that that message around engineers are, are used to doing this; they're used to assessing risks. Financiers are used to assessing risks. Um, let's just get talking to each other more and understanding what's coming now, what's coming in the future, what the emerging policy is. So overall, a, a huge amount of support for, for the reports and some areas that we've taken away to build upon and to work on uh, as a community. I'm really interested in the concept of how you did the event. It was far, far less about preaching to everybody about this is what you need to do, but more about a conversation. So was there anything that the audience came back with that surprised you? So in general, most of the audience participation was um, was quite supportive of the work that we'd done and, and reinforced the messages that came through. There was a lot of good discussion around the international context that came out, um, thinking around... You know, there, there were some contributors that, that came up with some examples they'd witnessed in emerging economies of low technology solutions. And that message actually around low carbon solutions, not always being high tech and actually our, um, our understanding of risk, we sometimes think around new technologies too much. Whereas there were some quite practical examples of people deploying reused batteries in um, in emerging economy settings, along with solar, which were actually fairly low tech. And there was some so there were some good examples that came out of um, really challenging us from a UK perspective to, to to look outwards and think about how how low carbon approaches have been adopted in other countries, how the risk had been managed on those projects and not just managed, but shared between different partners, because often that, that's 
that's one of the ways ways that risk is managed in the financial community um, is not to just to de-risk projects, but actually think about risk allocation and who it sits with. So there were some quite interesting examples that that were brought to us by the audience that um, were overall quite supportive of, of our work, but but weren't things that we'd focused on. So it was it was great to get those perspectives. Brilliant. So do you see it being as much of a mindset shift as uh, being a technical shift needed in order for civil engineers to both design and gain funding for low carbon solutions? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah yes. And um, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> Sitting on the fence there. <laughs> so there is a there's a technical shift required in that the, the data that's required and the evidence that required to demonstrate low carbon design, resilient design, that definitely needs to be embedded into everything that engineers do. So it's moving from kind of climate change consultancy being something that was a niche specialism to being something that that is part of everyone's day job. So we need to we need to get the tools, the evidence, the frameworks, all of that in place and and a lot of a lot of good work has has happened there, so it, it, it it's the the tools are there, but we just need to bring them in, and um and, and get people using them as part of their day jobs, and and that is happening. So I think that element of it really is a mind um, a mindset shift and a behaviour shift. Engineers will will no doubt need support from from climate specialists as part of that process, um, but what we see particularly with less experienced or newer newer engineers that have come fresh out of education is actually that that transition to considering climate in in everything they do is is far easier um i think it it, it tends to be people that have been doing um doing this for a number of years that actually it you know it sometimes takes a bit more effort to um to onboard them and kind of change some of the behaviors and the mind mindsets so I do think you know that there's a there's a mindset mindset shift required. Um, there's um, there's an acceptance and, and a, an acknowledgement that a, a lot of the information that we already produce in the, as engineers is what financiers need, but it doesn't always flow between between the projects uh, engineering team and the financiers as smoothly as it should and at the right time, and and so it's it. It is largely providing the evidence to to support um, what the financiers need at, at the right stage, and that is largely about mindsets and behaviours. All the data's there. It's just a case of making sure that we share it and sort of make sure that the financiers have what they need. So I think we do have the data, like you said, but it's a case of we don't always present it in the way they need it. So you talked earlier about there being good case studies of where the two two industries have worked closely together. Could you perhaps share a case study with us of an infrastructure project where civil engineers have helped de-risk the work from a carbon perspective and it's helped with the funding? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to pick an example here that um, also gets to the heart of something that the investment community always say they need, which is, is, is scale. So financiers, uh, as, as I've highlighted, say there's no shortage of funding available provided you can give the confidence and ideally some scale because they, they manage large funds. 
So when we talk about scale, I think as, as engineers, we always leap towards the mega projects. But actually, what can be done from a carbon perspective that will become increasingly important is actually thinking about bundling up um, a lot of smaller projects and by having consistent approaches to climate change across a range of smaller projects that are perhaps rooted within a region, a city, that can really help give the financiers the confidence that, that they need to invest. So some of the work that we've done uh, in that space is with local authorities and combined authorities we're looking across a portfolio of potentially quite diverse projects that, that could that, that have included transport, housing, energy, etc. And, and really having a consistent approach to carbon management, to carbon accounting across that, that then produce the evidence that enables them across a portfolio to scale up and give some confidence that it achieved the sustainability goals of um, of the parties that are investing in that. So that kind of, of, of model as well is something that the finance community uh, are always calling for. Um, and, and it does work particularly well at a kind of regional or city scale. And as we look to the future, we're going to need to have a lot more distributed, smaller scale schemes as well as the big ones that also need to be low carbon. So that type of approach, consistency, evidencing it, um, having a management framework such as PASS 2080 that apply across those range of projects can then give, give the investors um, what, what they need to secure potentially better terms or, or it might just be a bar that they need to pass that, that, that actually it's not about securing better terms, but it's about having access to capital at all because they've got either corporate commitments or um, or commitments at a kind of policy or government level that they need to need to deliver against. It's not all about new infrastructure, is it? A lot of the infrastructure we'll be using in 2050 already exists. How do we decarbonise that? And what role does working more closely with finances have in achieving that? Well, and, then, and I think this does link to the last point I made about distributed infrastructure. Uh, and it also links into Infrastructure Carbon Review and past 2080, where whenever we think about um, decarbonising infrastructure, the first point of that hierarchy is, do, do we need to build? You know, that, that's where the biggest carbon savings come from. You know, I think that's do, where the biggest mindset shift comes from, isn't it? It's like we've always been focused on building more, building more, and it's actually, what do we need? Exactly, exactly. So do, do we need it in the first place? If we do need it, can we can we build less of the efficiencies um, before we then think about, you know, is it the right solution? Can we build it in a more efficient way? What kind of technologies can we use? So, you know, always think about that, that kind of hierarchy. And very much, you know, it, it's not all about new infrastructure. And I think this is where some of the conversations with the finance community is, you know, that that that's where um, we, we need to go there is um, you know, that often talk about kind of greenfield infrastructure in the finance space, whereas actually a lot of what we need to do, particularly, you know, as you say, looking ahead to 2050, it's not that far away, particularly in a, in a UK developed economy type context. We already have a lot of infrastructure. We already have a lot of buildings. And um, 
we we don't need to rebuild that. We need to make it more efficient. We need to repurpose it. And we need to find a way of giving some scale to that and putting some financial models around it that make that attractive to financiers. And it's trickier. You know, it's it, it, it can be fiddlier when you're working across a range of, of smaller projects or you're um, decarbonizing or introducing energy efficiency retrofit measures on a lot of existing properties versus building something new. And that's where some of our some of our approaches need to evolve. And, and I think there's definitely a role for the engineering community to work with the finance community and also policymakers and, and regulators to, to find a way of making that more um, deliverable and and more you know more financially attractive for investors um it, it it's something that that needs to happen across our buildings portfolio across our rail and road infrastructure there's a lot of retrofits of various kinds required so yeah the um th- th- that approach of aggregating of of pulling together distributed improvements into into a portfolio um, is, is, is definitely the way that the conversation needs to go there. I think we could have a whole other episode on retrofitting for decarbonisation, but so we won't cover any more on that for now, maybe another time. But just before we finish, can you tell our listeners, based on the findings of the report and your experience from your work, what they could each do in their everyday lives and work that could actually make a difference on the journey to net zero? What would your advice be? So my advice is always start from an evidence-based perspective understand where your carbon hotspots are is the way we like to refer to to essentially the parts of your personal or your 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 you know in the context of your work where where the biggest areas of carbon impact are and then think about the 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 things that you can do to either control guide or influence them so when we're talking about personal lives the areas that we can make the biggest difference are often going to be around travel and diets so uh those are probably some areas to focus on uh, to, to improve your own carbon footprint there um sometimes more some of the more visual things can feel a bit more like virtue signaling so it, it is nice to kind of start with a um an evidence-based perspective and think about the areas that um that you can make the most difference in although you know personally i i, I do like to think more around system change and i do think if as a global society if we're going to solve net zero um if we're going to fend off the worst the the worst impacts of climate change it is going to be through system change not not just through individual choices and of course that's where engineers can have a really big impact um because the infrastructure that that we you know collectively provide to people is um is really that that can be supportive of making low carbon choices so i'd really encourage every engineer to think about the the what what they do as part of their day job and the projects they're working on right now do they understand what the climate change impacts of those projects are is carbon being calculated what tools are being used um and and again it's 
there's no point being being precisely wrong it's okay to be you know almost right um so don't get too too lost in the detail um it, it it's okay to just understand what the the top five what the te- top 10 impacts are of a project you don't need to perform carbon calculations on every nut and bolt so it, it's about do, doing something that's appropriate and proportionate but yeah, so, so think about your own projects. Do you understand the carbon impact? Have you have you spoken to your clients about it? Do you understand how that project is being financed and how the financing links to environmental performance? Uh, and you know, you're providing the evidence that 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 can support that. So I'd really encourage people to think about those questions in the context of of what they currently do. And of course also thinking about what, what you might do in the future. And, uh, and, and the, there's a lot of opportunity um, in, the, in the green technology space, in the decarbonisation space. Um, so there's, and, and, and a lot of these, a lot of traditional engineering skills are absolutely crucial to delivering on, um, you know, on the green transition. So, think think about what what difference you can make to your current projects but also think about um how you can use your skills most valuably in you know in, in the in the technologies and the economy of tomorrow brilliant thank you some great advice there and we will provide a link as well to the report in the description for this episode so thank you for joining me today mark it's been a fascinating discussion and one that i think highlights the broadening role that civil engineers will play in creating a climate resilient society So join us again soon for another episode of The Engineers Collective. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.